Mic check, check, I'm good. So I'm Max Duran, Max, Max Duran, CWB Association Welding Podcast, Pod, Pod, Podcast. Today we have a really cool guest, Welding Podcast. The show is about to begin. Attention welders in Canada. Looking for top quality welding supplies? Look no further than Canada Welding Supply. With a vast selection of premium equipment, safety gear, and consumables, CWS has got you covered. They offer fast and reliable shipping across the country, and here's the best part. All podcast listeners get 10% off any pair of welding gloves. Can you believe that? Use code CWB10 at checkout when placing your next order. Visit CanadaWeldingSupply.ca now. Canada Welding Supply, your trusted welding supplier. Happy welding. Hello and welcome to another edition of the CWB Association Podcast. My name is Max Ron, and as always, we're, we're looking high and low, east and west, under and over to try to find the best guests we can find for the show. And today we have someone from way up north. And when I talk about north, I'm talking north, north, northwest territories up north. We have Philippe Vincent, or as he told me to call him Phil, because the proper pronunciation is in French, which is Philippe Vincent. <laughs> Hi, Phil. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Don't you love it when I can butcher your name in at least two prominent languages? Oh, that's okay. I've been I've been through that my whole life. So you're doing pretty good, actually. It's not that much of a butcher job. <laughs> awesome, Philip. So, you know, right now, where you're sitting right now, where are you? I'm in I'm in Whitehorse, uh, in the Yukon, actually. Okay. Um, so we're north of British Columbia and uh, east of Alaska. So the so, great Yukon, and there's a lot of mystery and folklore about the Yukon, you know, in Canadian and North American history. Uh, I think a lot of people have heard of the Yukon and um, and don't know much about it. Yeah, it's the last gold rush that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where people from all the way to the coast were traveling to Skagway, Alaska, which is south of where we live, and making their way up to Dawson City. Um, Dawson City is actually the, the town where the gold rush and Discovery Channel is filmed. And um, that's where the last gold rush was, but it's also still a gold town. Today. Yeah, there's lots of TV shows that I see. It's still, still people out there, you know, either bringing big equipment. I actually know a friend from high school that went up, with, bought the whole machinery, and he's doing the vacuuming in the water where they vacuum the ocean floor to try to get gold. Um, yeah. But then I, you, there's still people that I see, you know, with a pan, with a pan in the water, mm-hmm. and uh, it mm-hmm. seems to still be a living. Like, I mean, there must be still lots of gold floating around. I, th- I think there is, and like even the, the high-tech operation, they still test the ground with a gold pan. That's the easy way. They get trench and then... <laughs> so. <laughs> so so you're, you're not from there, though, right? You you did not... Uh, you weren't born in the Yukon. You you ended up or, or chose to live in the Yukon. So let's start at the beginning. Where are your roots from? Uh, my roots are from Quebec, a town called Trois-Rivières. It's halfway between Montreal and Quebec City on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River. Um, I lived there until I was about 20. Yeah. And what yeah, what, and this is where I... what made you want to leave? Um, early in my welding career, I decided to join the Army because the economy was uh, so-so at the time. Um, so I joined the Army, and while I was waiting for a course uh, from New Brunswick, 
they, they put us on a plane and they sent us to Whitehorse and I just fell in love with the place, um, mm. the nature, the outdoors and all that. Um, so I let the army go. And then when I moved here, and I got a job in welding right away. So when did you start welding? You said at 20, you were looking to join the army and you were already yeah. welding. So, you know, what age did you get into the trade? I got into welding school when I was 17. 17. And it was a program, yeah, right school. Yeah, program through, uh, you know, it's not apprenticeship in Quebec. It's a, it's a different system they have, but you know, the, yeah. the FHQ or something, what is it? The, it's it's called the it's a professional diploma they call it. Um, mm -hmm. So essentially, it's the same amount of school that you would find everywhere else in Canada. But instead of being work and school combined, you just do all your school all at once. So it was an eighteen months program. Okay, and then you hit the road and you start welding. Yeah, and then you you're done and you're a welder. And and why did you get into welding in the first place? You know what was it in your life that aimed you towards the trades? It, it's funny. Um, so my brother, which is younger than me, um, started right after high school. And one day he came home with a little stainless TIG art piece that he did. And I was floored by how cool it looked and mm -hmm. stuff. And so basically he got me the, the, the disease of welding. Then I was hooked <laughs> right up from there. The disease of welding. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, to which there is no known, known, no known, known cure, right? No, no, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> so did your brother end up being a welder? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Uh, he was six months ahead of me in school. And to this day, he still is a welder um, supervisor now, working around job sites in Quebec there. So in the, at home at the family supper, who's the better welder? Oof, I would say I haven't welded in a few years, so definitely him. <laughs> You're careful about your words there. I saw that. You're very careful. Yep. So you you uh, you know you enjoyed welding. It sounds like you picked a career that you were into. You have a it's in the family, and uh, and then it got pretty dry. So I'm I'm assuming this is probably around the 2008 time period when things kind of started getting a little dry for, for new welders. I mean, by then I had, I had been welding for a while. So, you know, the ones that were in the trade for a while, we were pretty secure, but we did see, I saw a lot of young welders kind of lose, lose their jobs, you know? Exactly. That's, that's what drove me. I would say drove me away because I still loved it, but mm -hmm. I didn't want that insecurity in my life of like, am I going to get laid off? Am I not? So that's why the army was kind of the easy way out if you want. And then in the army, and this is something I'd love to have someone from like currently in an army training program to understand how it works. Because I've had a number of guests on the show who who did time in the army. Uh, at the college I used to teach, the machinist uh, dean uh, foreman or the, the, the head teacher, the dean of, of machining was in the Navy for like 10 years. And they all like talk about, you know, the trades programs in the military and the opportunity for training in the military, you know, and I don't know how any of that works. So, you know, what, what did you do as a welder going into the army? What were you looking to do? Were you looking to weld more or get into a different career? Complete different career. Uh, what I enrolled in as was as a combat engineer, which uh, long story short is basically bomb and bridges. Um, so you build bridges and then you bomb other people bridges. Mm -hmm. Um, so I never fully completed the training, uh, because it was really backed up at the time. It was like two, three years to get fully trained. And, uh, 
it, I ended up here while I was waiting actually for my course. That's how I ended up in Whitehorse here because it had nothing to do with uh, combat engineer, what we were doing up here. And what was it that you were doing up there? What did they send you up for? We were just being duty drivers for cadets. Okay. Because so, we were we we're just waiting, doing not much on the base in uh, Town. So at least now we were useful to youths and to the programs. And when you got that first call or letter and they said, hey, Phil, you're going up north, way up north. What were your initial thoughts? Well, actually, I was. it was in June, and I remember par- packing my winter parka, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, is cra- which is crazy because up here in June, it's like 25 degrees and 20 hours of daylight. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it, it was a, a real misconception that I had no clue what I was getting into. But at 22, I was excited to discover something new and leave the little bubble of Eastern Canada. Mm-hmm. And when you landed, so, what were your first impressions? Oh, I won't need my parka. <laughs> this place is beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Lots of nature, it's, trees, brush, grass. The, the mountains. The mountains, like when you land in Whitehorse Airport, it's almost like, not Banff, but almost like all the, Whitehorse is in the valley, so you got all the mountains surrounding you and just the, the nature. And back then, it was way less uh, populated than it is now. So it uh, it definitely had a little little something of a small town that, that gets your attention. Yeah. Now, when you when you landed there and you and you're doing your your job with the military, which sounds not optimal. It sounds like you kind of this isn't where you saw yourself in your military career. No. At what point did you start thinking? You know, I want to step away from the army uh, or the military and uh, and maybe try something else. Um, you know, were you thinking that already when they were like, hey? you're two years away from getting into school for the military. Did you start thinking already, like maybe I should leave or do something else? No, I would say that when when I was about to leave, I asked my superior if I could be based in Whitehorse, and he says, no. That's when I says, okay, well, that's where I want to live. And I knew already from the summer being here that there was lots of opportunity for uh, welders because of the mining industry, because of the Mm -hmm. construction industry, because... So I wasn't worried about just coming here and finding a job, and that's just what I did. It took me it took me eight months from when I left to be released from the army, because you can't just quit. No, you can't <laughs> so, just go AWOL. <laughs> no, exactly. So it, it took a little bit of time, but by the time I, I got here in May, which is the prime season, uh, I ended up getting a job in welding in three hours of being in town. So that's awesome. And and then yeah. what about the the military side of it? The the does that still become something in your back pocket was there still communications with them or 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 is it a clean tie and you say i'm done with that part i'm moving on to my new white horse life yeah it's that was a clean cut there's nothing i've never got a letter after i got my t4 that year Mm -hmm. i've never heard nothing from them um at all actually so it it left some some good positive things in my life for the way i organize things now but as far as work relation that was it yeah and you know, as a welder now, you know, you're fresh. Sounds like you're still pretty young, 22 years old. You're still a kid. Mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of experience for striking out in a whole new part of the world in a whole new industry because, you know, mining in the West and in the North is a lot different than mining in other parts of the country. <laughs> Mainly weather and, and, uh, and access and all these things make a big difference. And um, mm-hmm. what was it like for you at that first job you know like you get hired on as a welder 
and you're thinking, okay, I know how to weld. You know, were you pretty green still? I, I'm not going to lie, in the two years in the military, you forget a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, I did remember a lot. Um, it came back after time, but the first day when I went in, I, and well, first of all, it was a change for me because I did my welding school in French. And right. so when I got it, and the boss of the company, it's a different company, mm -hmm. uh, asked me, so are you a journeyman? I didn't even know what a journeyman was because in French, it's a different term for starter. And in welding, there's no such thing in Quebec. So no. it was it was definitely a change. Um, but I would say after a week, two weeks, uh, I got back in my books and did a little bit of reading again to get back into it. It came back really good. The, the welding part didn't, that, that that's always was there. That never yeah. got lost. But the, the muscle memory the sticks. Side, yeah. Yeah, 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 it's the, the the technical side to set up the machine and read blueprints. That took a little bit, a little bit more time. And you know, did you then have to, or was there any onus on you to get your journey person up there? Because I know the territories, from an apprenticeship standpoint, are still kind of a uh, not set in stone. You know, like a Yukon, I believe, uses the Alberta apprenticeship model. Um, yeah. So, you know, was there any onus on you from uh, your the boss back then to say, look, you need to get your journey person um, or or you were just good and get to work? I mean, it's none of the jobs here are unionized. So the ticket really doesn't it, it does mean something. But at the same time, it doesn't affect how you're going to get paid. Mm -hmm. uh, like we do have a lot of employees here from Quebec, which are excellent welders and they don't have a journey person, but they've been doing it for 25 years. They, right. they have the same school as I did. So it's, I wanted to get it, but it took so long that by the time I had the hours necessary to, to challenge it, there was no beneficial gain for me to do so. So I, I didn't really see a, a point to do so. And what kind of work do you find or what's the majority of the work that you find yourself doing in, in, in the, in the Yukon? <clears throat> It's, it's really interesting. Um, so there's a few companies uh, like the one I work for where we're like, we got welding shops and it's more of a, a weld, uh, a shop uh, atmosphere. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So the nice thing is that unlike Alberta, for example, where you got a pipe shop, all you do all this pipe, you got a excavator repair shop, all you do all these repair excavator, you got a building shop, all you do is buildings here because of the, the geographic location and the need for all that. Uh, in the same day, you can be welding on pipe, on a bucket, or on a building. So you, you really get well-rounded in those shop environments. And is every shop like that? Is that kind of just the way it runs? Uh, it's like that for... There's 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 mm -hmm. four CWB shop in town, and I would say for two of them, it, it's kind of the way it works. Um, so there, there's not enough demand either to to expand to like a shop that would be solely doing uh buildings right you would run out of work you would run out of work because in the winter sometimes the construction don't line up with that's each right. other so. that's right now you, you brought up cwb you know for for being for cwb shops in town in some provinces cwb doesn't count very much in some provinces cwb is a big deal you know and it, and it usually is uh, tied to structural welding that's the 90% of what CWB shops are going to be doing is structural. That's why they're mm -hmm. going to get registered. Is there, is that why um, those shops, you know, bother to go through a CWB registration process is just for the structural work that can come through whenever? 
hundred percent because there's lots of bridge repair. Like we still use mm. the old bridges from from the the army days when they built the Alaska Highways in the fifties. So those are getting timed out. They need lots of repairs, which is CWB. Lots of steel buildings because of the high seismic zone here, which is all CWB. So it definitely made sense uh, to, to to get the certification for for those those two elements alone. Yeah, and high seismic zone. You got a lot of earthquakes up there, or is that ice shifting, or is it earth shifting? No, it's it's uh, it's uh, earthquakes. It's yeah. actually higher zone than Vancouver, um, really up here. So yeah, so, so it do, makes you, do you feel a lot of them? Really, uh, over the years, I felt a few that were actually quite quite <laughs> severe. Uh, like one of them actually cracked some buildings downtown. Mm-hmm. The, all this the stucco on the outside was cracked and they had to close government buildings. Really. I did not yeah, know that. In... That'd be like I'm from Chile, where we have a lot of earthquakes, and uh, just this last uh, December, I took my wife or November, I took my wife down to Chile, and she experienced her first first earthquake. As someone from Saskatchewan who has never felt an earthquake, she felt her first one, and it was only a four point seven, but that's enough to feel it, and uh, it kind of mm-hmm. freaked her out, you know. And I I didn't really think about the north having uh, seismic activity. Oh, it's it's quite high actually. Like we had one about a month and a half ago where I was laying down in bed and I woke up and it was almost <laughs> trembling. It's, yeah, no, it's, and it, it makes construction. Um, like we have bylaws in Whitehorse where a building can only be so high. So that's not like high rises like Vancouver, but it still make the post disaster design um, mm-hmm. quite beefy and steel intensive for that. Yeah. What's the population of Whitehorse? Like what, how large of a community are we servicing here? Like as of today, uh, Yukon is approximately forty thousand, and probably Whitehorse would be about thirty, thirty-two thousand of that. Really, and and that's not that's not very many. Like, I mean, that's a pretty small town for being, you know, like uh, the center hub of an area, especially a province or a territory that's so large and has a ton of resources. Like, there's a lot of resources in the north. There is. Uh, the access to them is a different things um, because of land agreements and all that. So, uh, and it's, there's a lot of, and I can understand people that wants to protect too, because sometimes mining operation uh, don't always leave it clean. Like, like in in the Yukon, the biggest mining disaster in North America is sitting here in Mm Faro. And that, that left a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouth. Like that's a hundred, I think it's a, thousand million to clean to a billion dollar to clean yeah so and what about the indigenous communities up there like you know when you say forty thousand total for the territory is that including indigenous numbers or because i would assume there's a fairly large unregistered indigenous population as well Uh, i don't know i I wouldn't be able to comment about a registered or unregistered or how that that would work but i think that the population is active populations that would include probably everybody that's it's on the books. That lives here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how involved are they, uh, the indigenous communities, in the trades and community work, and and you know the development of of their territorial because it's really their land, and you know we want as a country or as a civilization, you know, to we want what's in that ground. We all do. We want it everywhere. So it must be very. You, you have to be very accommodating. And you have to be careful with how these negotiations go down, I, I assume, even for any work that happens. Uh, they, they're really involved. Like, as like you said, it's, it's their land. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know uh, there's always 
there's always a consideration when we put in proposals to have First Nation involvement uh, within the company, within the projects, to make sure that not only, I know the government does their own consulting when they do the project, but so also, for, also for them to be involved and um, all the small businesses can also beneficiate from the, the government money too. Yeah, that's right. And what about the cost of living? You know, we hear about this all the time. I had a friend just go up to Nunavut for work. He's a nurse. And he sent me a picture of buying a bottle of Pepsi, a two-liter bottle of Pepsi for $20. Like, is that real? Is that a thing? Is it that bad in the Yukon? In the in the Yukon, in Whitehorse, no, because you know, we're still connected with the Alaska Highway to Edmonton. So mm-hmm. most of our things are trucked. What you refer to in, in Nunavut would be the same thing as a few community in Northwest Territory and Old Crow in Northern Yukon is flying only community. Yeah. Where, where then, yeah, it costs $50 for 12 packs of Pepsi. <laughs> but it, it's it's understandable because it's only available by, by plane. So yeah. with the cost of fuel now and carbon tax and all, it makes it really costly to do all that, right? And what about the pay then? Like if I'm paying, if I'm paying $20 for a bottle of Pepsi, you know, if I think in my normal life that a bottle of Pepsi is $2 and let's say that's one twentieth of my hourly pay, uh, you know, is $20 for a bottle of Pepsi up north still one twentieth of an hourly pay? Or do you have to be much more careful with how you do your economics? Well, in, in Whitehorse, uh, it's not $20 for a bottle of Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking, if you're paying $2 in Saskatoon, we're probably paying two fifty here. Okay. So it's not, it's, it's not like that much out of line. Like those communities where you pay $20 for a bottle of Pepsi, there's not many private companies doing business there because it's, right. you would have to too you would have to pay yeah yeah you would have to pay a labor seventy dollars an hour mm-hmm. then you wouldn't be able to get the service right right and but the, the cost of living is a little bit higher like house house prices or but I think that's across Canada yeah um, like when I first moved here we were cheaper than Fort McMurray so it was not but I, I know now we're a little bit more than Fort Mac so it's it's kind of goes like this yeah and i think a lot of places especially if you're tied to alberta you're going to have that fluctuation based on the economy right absolutely so what other industries are are strong and prevalent in in the in the yukon aside from like the the welding maintenance side you know what about the welding for like lumber or forestry or fishing or anything like that is there what are the other main industries there's not much forestry up here just due to the climate like if a 20 year old tree is going to be this big. You wouldn't make money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like as far as, as far as welding goes, like I know, uh, private contractors and miners usually hire their, my, their, their own welders to do their, uh, line boring and mm-hmm. equipment repairs and sluice boxing. But those, those type of welders would be more of a millwright type of person. Um, so like more mechanically inclined as well. Yeah. Can cover, um, kind of, can kind of do everything. Yeah, like on a on a twelve hour shift because that's what he would work at a mine. He would maybe do like four hours welding and then pulling wrenches for the other eight or something like that. So, uh, I would say definitely the construction, new construction, and highway maintenance is definitely the the main source for the the welding here. And when we watch those shows like the Alaska Highway, you know, and it's all these terrible accidents happening all the time and and people sinking in the ice and stuff. Is that actually how life is up north? They make it seem so dramatic all the time. 
Well, the Alaska Highway is is sketchy between here and northern northern BC, even around Fort Saint John, mm-hmm. uh, especially when there's big snowstorm because it's only a, sing, a single lane both directions. So when you get big blizzards with the wildlife, there's no lights, street lights, so it's just your headlights. You have no idea. You have no idea. So it's it can it can be challenging, definitely. Uh, the the show the actual truckers near Yellowknife. It's that part is a little bit dramatic for the show, mm-hmm. but uh, it's definitely it takes some 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 skills to be used to uh, driving the Alaska Highway up and down all the time. So, in your personality as a kid from <clears throat> Trois-Rivières in Quebec, you know you're, you you do a little stint in the army. You kind of were a welder. You get sent up into into the Yukon. What is it in your personality that made you land and be like? This is where I want to live. This is where I want to put my roots down. And it sounds like you made that decision fairly quickly. So something really attracted you that, you know, sold you on it. Yeah. So like the main thing that I do on my spare time is fishing. It didn't matter if I was uh, in the army while being a kid. That's always been my thing. And uh, the fishing up here is probably one of the best in the world. Um, So after a summer here... Once I knew that I would be safe financially and have a good career and do the best fishing in my life, I says that's <laughs> definitely where I want to be. <laughs> and I wanted to get away from I wanted to get away from the big city too. Like my Trois Rivières is a couple hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. Um here is thirty thousand. But because it's the hub of the north, if you want, it's a small town with the commodity of a big town, if yeah. you want. So you got access to many things that a 40,000 people town in uh, northern Alberta, let's say, wouldn't have. So do you have like a superstore or gross, like a, something yeah, yeah, like we got, that? yeah, we got superstore, Canadian Tire, Walmart, a few Starbucks, a few uh, Tim Hortons, uh, Mark's Warehouse. Wow. Uh, Save on Dolorama. Like we got, we got all the, the, the goodies if you want. Well, that's, that's, that's amazing. Only for a 30,000 person community. But I guess that includes anybody coming in and out, right? Because there's probably a lot of people traveling through. No, 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 no. This is this is only uh, this is permanent people. If you really? in the summer, the population in the summer population, I would say probably go up to sixty, seventy thousand, easy, just from people coming for the twenty-four hour daylight, but they don't want to see the twenty-four hour darkness. So <laughs> <laughs> we're we're here for the good time, not the long time. Yeah, people. There is probably so, a fairly strong tourism aspect to 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 that area as well i know me and my wife pre-covid literally the year before covid we were planning on uh driving up to to white horse because we wanted to do the camping from regina up into edmonton my daughter lives in grand prairie alberta so that's kind of on the way up and then we were going to go all the way camping stopping all the way and go camping all the way up we love fishing too um but then covid happened and everything got shut down so we didn't do it but, uh, you know, we're not the only people. A lot of people love making that trip. Like the amount of people doing that trip is what drives the economy here in the summer for the small businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> people people go from Edmonton or even <clears throat> a lot of American tourists wants to go to Alaska. And they go from the lower mainland and they drive through Edmonton, Banff, and then up to Alaska because we're only an hour drive from Alaska. Like I can jump in my pickup and be in Alaska in an hour. So Really? And Alaska yeah. has a lot more population, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Alaska, like Anchorage alone, is three hundred thousand people. Oh wow! So, wow. 
and I think like I think the whole Alaska is somewhere around the five hundred, six hundred thousand. Oh wow! So that's a big difference, and it's not much bigger of a like in, in geographically. I don't think Alaska is much bigger than the Yukon. No, it's not. But I think it's got more coastline. Like we don't have any coastline yeah, in the Yukon, right. and that drives the fish, fishing industry uh, and access. They have access, right? So exactly. All right. Well, let's take a break here for a commercial and our sponsors, and then when we get back, I want to talk to you about you know what you do now where you work and and you know the pluses and minuses the obstacles and all the challenges that might happen to someone looking to run a business up in the in the northern territory so we'll be right back here on the CWB Association podcast with Phil Vincent don't go anywhere uh, stay tuned and I'll catch you in a couple minutes the CWB Association is new and improved and focused on you. We offer a free membership with lots of benefits to anyone interested in joining an association that is passionate about welding. We are committed to educating, informing, and connecting our workforce. Gain access to your free digital publication of the Weld Magazine, free online training, conferences, and lots of giveaways. Reach out to your local CWB Association chapter today to connect with other welding professionals and share welding as a trade in your community. Build your career, stay informed, and support the Canadian welding industry. Join today and learn more at cwbassociation.org. And we're back here on the CWB Association podcast. My name is Max, and I'm here with Philip Vincent. Coming to us from the Yukon, Northwest, or in the Yukon and Whitehorse, and uh, he's telling us about his travels from Quebec <coughs> to the north, to uh, being a welder up there, and, you know, you start working for these companies, doing a lot of, basically a lot of everything, because you have to be able to service whatever, and then what? You know, so... You started working for a company. You started building up your welding career. What What's the next path? What's the pathway for a welder in in Whitehorse? Well, there's 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 definitely um, lots of lots of opportunities for lots of different uh, type of work. Like for example, as a company now, we do our own steel erection. So somebody that wants to learn a little bit about the iron worker trade, uh, you got a chance to do that. Um, and I guess it's it, it's so diversified that you never, like I got guys here now on the payroll that have been here for twenty years and they're still learning new things all the time. So it's it's the the advantages up here is that you never <clears throat> focus only in one one thing. Yeah, and for yourself, you know, coming up and you're starting to grow as a welder in in your area, what were the skills that you really needed to gravitate towards quickly in order to have a successful career there? What what happened with me? Uh, so, we we had many jobs at the time throughout the north in Cambridge Bay, Northwestern, uh, Nunavut, and in Iqaluit, and all those places. And I got the chance to travel a lot um, and do site work. And I can speak from experience that usually when you work on site, you're not in the perfect shop environment, so you learn a lot more and a lot faster. So, mm -hmm. and I was I was overtime driven at the time, um, like I was working maybe a thousand hours of overtime a year. So I really learned really fast because I worked probably for five years, the equivalent of eight or nine years in the field. And that really, really helped me a lot uh, to what I'm doing now, actually. You know, and that's so interesting. There was an interview I had just not too long ago. I think it was three or four guests ago where we started talking about the over that magical overtime number that people have in their heads. You know, and I remember when I was, on the floor, still working as a welder, working my way up. I would always aim for in between 800 to 1,000 hours overtime a year. That's what I would mm -hmm. aim for. 
And now that I'm an old man, I think about working a thousand hours overtime <laughs> and it's like, no way. There's no way I'm going to do a thousand hours <clears throat> overtime a year. You couldn't pay me enough to work that hard anymore. But when you're young and you're driven, it's it's not even that hard. A thousand is like a good number and it's a good amount of wage. And it's not the money that you're actually getting ahead on. It's the experience. Like you just said, putting in that exactly. overtime, it's hours. And they always say 10,000 hours and you're a master. That's what people always say. 10,000 hours of anything, you can consider yourself a master. Well, when you're putting in twice as many hours as the person next to you, you're going to get twice as good, twice as fast, right? A hundred percent. And as like from, from my experience, an, an hour in the field can replace two hours in the shop, just like that. Mm -hmm. Because when you, when you run into a trouble, you might not be able to run to your foreman and be like, Hey, how do you fix this? You got your customer here. He wants his things fixed or mm -hmm. you just got to figure it out. Right. So, and when you get good at it, people keep asking for you. So it's yeah. kind of a circle. When you start looking around the ground for scrap, <clears throat> for scrap steel that you can somehow turn into something else. <laughs> a, tool, a tool that you need because you don't have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. so you did your time welding. You're doing this. How long were you in the field for before you decided that you needed to change it up? Or how was that decision made? It actually was made for me. Um, so after about five years of working for, for the company I'm for now, um, I the, our foreman ended up quitting. So I was the next one in line to fill up the boots because I had the experience to, to put up buildings and to run a crew a little bit. So it went from there. And then I was foreman for two years, three years, just about. And then mm -hmm. my boss went on vacation. And he says, hey, just go and uh, go in the office for a couple of weeks while I'm gone and just take care of a few emails and stuff. And yeah, seven years later, I'm still in the office. <laughs> he never came back from holidays? What happened? <laughs> I, he, he did come back from holidays, but he realized that I could I could do not bad. So he decided to, to start training me as a junior project manager and then slowly worked up from there. So from, from welder to foreman to project manager to now what is your role with the company general manager so your general manager what's the name of the company uh, klondike welding okay so klondike welding so if someone was to ask you you know 30 second elevator speech what's klondike welding let me know klondike welding is uh is a company north 60 we do buildings we repair bridges uh we're always there 24 7 for the government when there's accident we're the first one to get called to fix any infrastructures that are critical. Um, we can produce a lot of steel in a year, somewhere in the thousand ton range. Uh, we've got a big shop. We, we got a good management team. Uh, we've got a good atmosphere to work for and we're constantly changing and upgrading to meet the demand. So I think we're a pretty, pretty driven company. That's got lots of, lots of future ahead. Good. And what's the size, you know, what, what size footprint are you looking at for your company? What size of what, sorry? Footprint, like your shop. How big is it? Uh, so our, our lot is uh, four acres, and we got the shop is 12,000 square feet. Okay. How many welders do you have on staff? Uh, it varies depending on the time of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, in the busy time, we add up to 30 people on staff. And in the slower time, we're down sometimes, like now, to about 15, 12, 15. Okay. So, and this is something I've heard, is like the cyclical nature of the work in the north, you know, uh, what do people do during the slow times? You know, 
are the layoffs just expected every year? People go, you know, it's just time to be on EI or, or is there, is there winter work to pick up in between or? Well, I've been here, I've been here now for 13 years and we've, we've, I think only once or twice I've seen a laid off due to slow time because when we boom and we get really busy, instead of hiring people permanently, we just bring people up from mm-hmm. Alberta or Vancouver or something to help fill up that gap just for that three months period that we got. So right. our, our crew, our core crew is always there. They never have to, to, to worry about any of that. Awesome. And how do you hire when you're up north? You know, like I believe... There's only one welding school, and I believe that's um, uh, UConn U. UConn University is the oh, only yeah. welding program there. Uh, Sky Pearson is the instructor there, and, and yeah, yeah, Sky, yeah, and Sky's an awesome dude. I I, I work with him for skills. He, he is, but he, you know, I talk to him every year. We get together for skills every year as part of the the teams, and um, he always tells me that you know it's. Uh, there's not a lot of welding programs. There's not a lot of welding students. Sometimes they struggle filling the classes, and you know, they, and it's not for fault of the program, just population-wise. So what? Yeah. What do the companies do to hire? How do you do? You take all the kids, every kid that graduates out of the program. You're like, you're mine, or or how does it work? Well, it's, it's difficult because as in a shop, you need to maintain a certain ratio of journeymen to apprentices too, right? So doing just that wouldn't be feasible. Um, I think there's two ways that uh, the world changes pre-COVID and there's post-COVID. Mm-hmm. So pre-COVID, we used to get like two to four people every year that would walk in the front door with the resume and be like, hey, I'm moving here. My wife got a job or I want to explore the North and we could have like a, a few people. But now with the since COVID, People are not traveling as much. They're right. not moving as much, and the economy is slowing down. So it's been it's been more challenging uh, over the last couple of years to to get them new employees. I know that one of the things we look at here in the CWB Association, literally, we talk about it every year. I've been with the company now three years, and it's something that I've been a focus every year. And we haven't quite figured it out. And hopefully, these conversations are going to help. But how do we get more support up in the north? You know, like we want to support, you know, Sky and Yukon University. We want to support welding programs, trades programs in general, women of steel, you know, women in welding, indigenous people in welding training, people underrepresented groups, all these things that we want to do. We do them in every province. You know, we spend all this money supporting every province in Canada except for the territories. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's unjust. Like we should be finding ways to support um, the Northern communities. But what's been missing is that everywhere we go in Canada, along the uh, along the provinces, we always have industry partners. So we'll always have an industry partner to say, hey, we'll partner with this industry, we'll work with the college, we'll run a couple programs over the summer and introduce a whole bunch of people to welding. Whether they stay in welding and work or not, that's fine. Whether they stay in you know there or even follow with it in the end is fine. But at least it gives them a ability to see that there is support. You know, and it's not it's not so isolated because I think people sometimes get afraid that if you go up north, you're completely cut off. And I don't think that's true. No, it's not true at all. And that's definitely something that uh, that would be interesting to do. And maybe that's something that you can you can contact get in contact with me um, mm-hmm. after the podcast. There, and something we can definitely would be interested in doing for sure because. 
it, it's in our advantages and other companies as well to have young people that are enthusiastic about welding. And it's such a beautiful trade. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's, it's not like a lot of people have a misconception that it's, 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 you're in a little dark shop, dirty and black smoke and this and that, like things have changed where mm -hmm. safety is more of a is a concern. And then it's, it's, it's more, it's not a dirty trade as per se anymore. It's, it's a beautiful trade that you can work with your hands. And it's, it's as far as I'm, I love welding. It's well, it's and look thing, at, but... look at your own story. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a trade that has so many avenues of growth. You know, you can end up Absolutely. general manager of a company. Myself, I was a Red Seal welder. I ended up being director of that's a CWB. And, you know, mm -hmm. these are these are pathways that exist. So, yeah, you may. There is times where it is a dark, dirty job. There may be times where that's it. But that's not forever, and that's not all of it. That's just a small piece of what the industry is. Exactly. And every job, as far as I'm concerned, have their, their quirks. So if you take the good and the bad, I think it's a it's a beautiful job. It's a beautiful career with tons of opportunities because regardless of where the industry goes, there will always be steel bridges. There will always be steel buildings. There will always be steel equipment. It's going to be a job that you're never going to run. If you're good, you're never going to run out of work. Mm -hmm. And if you're invested in your work too. And what's it like to travel in and out? Like, is there flights that come in and out every day? Is it fairly easy, like in, in the summer to to get in to move around lots of hotels like what's the atmosphere like there for for visitors for visitors it's great like there's two or three flights uh, a day in the summer if not more and mm -hmm. the winter is at least once or twice a day uh and you can take a car and drive up the highway from edmonton mm -hmm. it's uh, 2000 kilometers so in the summer a couple of days you can be here and it's a beautiful drive so it's it's there's nothing nothing there like it's it's not secluded as per se. Whitehorse is not secluded. Yeah. Yeah. Would, and it's fairly, fairly cheap to, to fly from Vancouver, Edmonton to here. So it's not the end of the world. This is the reason I'm asking. <clears throat> and I'm going to pitch this idea to you on, on the open air in front of thousands and thousands of people. We do can weld every year. We do conferences across Canada every year. We participate in conferences around the world. Conferences are a wonderful way to bring people together to network, but also to showcase local industry. One of the things that I've really focused on since we started, since I started at the CWB, is that every second year we pick a location that's perhaps a little bit more remote to try to showcase industry and, and I kind of open up people's eyes. So, you know, this year it's going to be in Toronto. It's the big show. But last year we did it in Moncton. Uh, New Brunswick, you know, a small community. We teamed up with the New Brunswick Community College, a small college, and showed off some industry. You know, it's only a 200-person conference, much smaller scale than our big one, but people really, we have learned, love those small conferences. Maybe we have less people come, but the people that come are very serious about what they do, mm -hmm. and they want to learn about whatever's going on. So I've already thought about it with my team a couple times. Like, could we do a conference in the north? Could we find a northern, like in the territories, to do a conference? Uh, but there's so many questions about, you know, where, how, who's going to go, what industries would support this? Is there a mining association? Is there, a, uh, you know, is there a unions? Is there other colleges? And and I haven't really been able to find a good contact. Uh, the only contact I have 
honestly is Sky. He's the only person <laughs> that I've ever talked to. And he's always like, well, I don't know what's going on outside the school, really. Like, I just work with the school and the college. Um, and you're kind of the first person I've thought. So in your professional opinion, would it be an attraction? Would like, are there conferences that run up there already? Do people host conferences in Whitehorse? There, there's, there's like reverse trade show sometimes and these kinds of things, which we did a reverse trade show for, uh, project specific uh, a year ago. And it was kind of a hit. Like we got lots of people, lots of, lots of applicants and all that. Um, it seems to be something that's, the one I've seen are more project specific. Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't think that anybody in the industry have ever taken the time to do something like this. I think it would be, I think it would be a hit. And quite frankly, uh, I know Sky quite well. I'm sure between me and him, we could help you set up something up here that would be that would be good. Yeah, because it's not a lot of moving pieces. Like when I was talking about doing the conferences in smaller communities, and we were talking about the plan, all I said is, I need a college, I need an industry supporter. And then I need some events. So like a facility tour or a, or a sightseeing tour. So like, you know, we, in New Brunswick, we went and looked at shipbuilding and then we went and looked at the, at the college and whatever's around, you know, you eat lobsters and whatever, like whatever's local, because I didn't want to be like, hey, we're coming to your community to tell you what to do. Like we even contacted mm-hmm. the local indigenous people in, in Moncton and said, you know, can you come do the opening ceremonies? You come do the foods. Tell you tell us about your. We even did sessions with uh, skills trades of indigenous people, where they showed us, you know, bead making and stuff like that. Um, and I think that the there's probably so much of that history up in the north that no one knows about, including myself, right? Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. And I do think that something like this, uh, if you make if you mix it with the, the the First Nation cultures and roots, you would definitely get lots of lots of success with that. Hundred percent. Well, I'm gonna have to I, follow I, this up. We're gonna talk after the show, but it is something that I've brought up every couple of years, and people have kind of pushed back. Well, I wouldn't say pushed back, but they're the question is like, would we have enough people attend? And then my response is, does it matter? Maybe we have less people attend, but the people that attend will be amazed. And that's really what's important. Quantity. You know what I mean? Quantity over quality, uh, quality over quantity for sure. That's right. Cause we go to Toronto and Toronto's 6,000 people conference. That's awesome. But I also know that at the end of the, at the end of the week, when the conference is over with 6,000 people, everyone feels like everything just happens so fast. Yep. And you say, you sit someone down and you say, okay, what do you remember the most about the last week? And it's like, ah, I don't know. You know what I mean? But when we talk yeah. about uh, New Brunswick, people are still, you know, it's been eight months. People are still telling me, oh, New Brunswick, we went to that local brewery. The brewery is like 400 years old. You know, we got to do this cool stuff. And they're still talking about that little community in New Brunswick. You know what I mean? So I think it yeah. makes a difference in people's minds. No, 100%. And I think I think you you could get a lot of that here. And there would definitely be something to, to be said of having such events, I think, would be... It would be, you would remember it because the Yukon is is a place that you don't forget. That's why I'm still here 15 years later. (laughs) (laughs) Now for yourself professionally, you know, as, as a general manager of a welding shop, you know, what are some of the big obstacles that you have to deal with when you plan out work or the year, even when you look at a fiscal year for your company, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you have to overcome? Uh, I would say that the, the geographics are definitely one of them. Uh, the, one of the challenge versus uh, fabricators, let's say from Edmonton or Vancouver, is 
when I need material, uh, it takes minimum two days if a truck is coming up the highway to bring me my material. So it takes a lot more planning, front end planning, because you can't just say, hey, go to such and such and get a piece of steel because you won't, you mm. won't get it, right? So definitely the location um, is, is a big one. Um, the weather, of course, our construction season is only good construction season is only about six months if that if that yeah. so yeah like right now we're putting up uh, an expansion of the hospital and my my guys there they're working outside last week it was like minus 28 minus 30 and it was just just cut off before we were shutting it down and it it just makes everything slower so you got to take that into account too because in, in january you can be lucky and get away a month of uh, minus 15 which is good weather mm-hmm. but you can also want of minus 40 which it's not good weather. Well, and the steel, the steel doesn't work well when it's below minus 20. Like, it just doesn't work well. It doesn't move the same. It doesn't weld the same. Even with preheating, people are like, oh, you just grab a tiker torch and heat up the joint. It's not the same. Like, you cut a steel when it's minus 40, then measure it when it's zero. You know, like, oh, I mean, yeah. you got a way different length. These things grow and shrink quite a bit. Oh, 100%. And that, like, at minus 30, minus 40, even... Yeah, I don't care if you preheat by the time you turn around, grab your stinger and start laying your bead, your thing is cold already. Yeah. So it's <laughs> like we, we avoid doing any any welding on site, even when it's colder than minus 18, because that's yeah. kind of the, the cutoff. It's anything after that where bolting up the building is not such as bad. Yeah. But and you no hot work usually. Yeah, I know how it works. It's difficult. I've I've been on hot site or cold weather sites and welding up out, especially at height in the cold. Cause you get a little bit of wind and then there's nothing underneath you to help you warm up either. There's no ground. So you're cold mm-hmm. all the way around. And I remember my rod oven, like, I mean, rod ovens are set to, to you know, 120 Celsius, 250 Fahrenheit. And it wouldn't even, it was, my rod oven was at 20 degrees uh, Celsius. It was so cold that it was just sucking the heat right out of the rod oven. Yep. So we couldn't even use the, the electrodes. We're like, well, I guess we're not welding today. I remember my foreman at the time, he was really pissed off because he's like, oh, we got to get this done. And I was like, there's no way. Like nothing is, it's too cold. It's like minus 40 and we got like 70 kilometer winds. This is dangerous. Yeah. We should not be doing this. <laughs> like ultim- ultimately, we, we tried to avoid uh, putting up buildings at this time of year, but yeah. We're not making the call on this one. Usually it's a general contractor that dictate the schedule, not the subcontractor. So mm-hmm. like I would say it's very seldom we put up buildings when it's that cold, but it it does happen. And what about bringing up talent? You said like every now and then, every year you have to bring up some talent from other provinces to yeah. help supplement the work. Is that a tough process or do you do you have like kind of regular people that seem to come back every year or how does that process work? It, it, it kind of works both ways. We do have a, a crew in Alberta of like a few guys that they're the first one we call. And if they're not busy, they come and then they work and then they go. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then we got to just do a whole new hiring process. Um, usually you wins or one of those hiring sites and do interviews over the phone, which I find really, really difficult as in the welding industry to be mm-hmm. doing an interview over the phone because you can be able to build a spaceship on a resume, but if you can run a seventy eighteen up, if you can run a seventy eighteen up hands, you're, that says a lot, right? Well, I ha- I so. do know that some welding companies are now doing Zoom interviews, where they'll actually book uh, the interviewees at a local school or or hall, 
and have the camera set up and say, okay, run some beads in front of me in the camera for virtual uh, well tests. So I don't know if that's something that you'd be interested in, but post-COVID, everyone has a cell phone or a web camera. It's very easy to set it up to to run some beads, you know? That's that's actually a pretty good plan. I might uh, (laughs) keep that in my back pocket for next time. Well, it is it is tricky. Like, I mean, hiring is always a tricky thing. And I, I've had this conversation with so many people because if I look at a resume, it'll say welder fitter. Everyone writes down. Everybody writes down yep. welder fitter. Like, and they might they might not even know what welder fitter means, but they're gonna put it on their resume. Welder fitter, and then they show up and they can kind of weld, and they cannot fit at all because fitting is mm-hmm. fabrication is a whole nother game. Just because you oh, put 100%. some things in a jig doesn't mean that you're a fabricator. And and you don't know that till they show up unless you do some type of an exam or a test or like I mean I I, I know some places uh, there's a friend of mine who owns a company down in in Pennsylvania he does a a fitting test he forces everyone that comes in for a job test he hands them a you know six identical squares and says fit me a box I want a box that's it six squares yep. it doesn't get any easier than that it needs to measure the same on all sides and it needs to be square. And he said out of 50 people, he may have two that can do it. And I was shocked by that, you know. And I, he said that half didn't even finish. They just abandoned the project and said, no, I can't do it. And, and, if, and if that's the reality, because really there's only a couple of fabricator courses left in Canada, period. And there's none in the U.S. There's no, like they're done. Where are these young welders going to learn to fabricate i mean that's tricky you know what i think that's one thing that i must say that the program in quebec was was unreal for uh and i think i would i would love to see that more in 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 programs across canada Mm -hmm. is to have more emphasis on the the blueprints aspect of the job because that's just as important as welding if you can read the drawing to know what you have to weld it's 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 difficult right so like my course on 18 months there was one day a week for the whole 18 months that was only drawings yeah well i know in saskatchewan we still have fabricator program alberta still has a fabricator program i don't know if bc does and ontario doesn't um so it's getting less and less you know like the fabricators Mm -hmm. that come through saskatchewan i used to teach here Every single student that went through the fabricator program got hired before they were even done school. Like they weren't even close to being done school and they already had a company being like, you can come work here. And they actually didn't even care if they could weld. They said, we could teach you how to weld. The welding I can teach mm-hmm. you. The fabricating is the tougher part to teach. 100%. 100%. And it's, it's, it's what we're lacking here, finding the most is I can find lots of people that can weld. It's easy. It's the fabricating part. And that's, Actually, like if we go back to what we were talking earlier, it, it, it becomes even hard sometimes when, when the program, they have all those welders, those young apprentices, it, it's fine, but then they can weld. They, they can run a metal core, flux core flat, and that's perfect. But if you don't have the fitters mm-hmm. to feed them steel, then you're, you're hooped, right? So there's definitely a lack in the industry of, of fitters as per se. There's a... I was just, so I was talking to a, a company, Brandt, Brandt Industries. I used to work at Brandt Industries when I was younger. They're a massive manufacturing company here in the prairies. And um, we were talking about the pyramid. And they, uh, when I was working with them, they kind of explained this pyramid of fabrication to me. And I always think about this when I think about education, because they would say for one engineer, 
you would have five fitters, fabricators, to work with that engineer to put together the things that he's coming up with. And they would communicate. So you always communicate to them, this doesn't work, this does work, we may have to make changes, blah, blah, blah. For every, for every one fabricator, you have seven welders. So one fabricator, good fabricator, should feed enough work to maintain optimal seven welders. And that, that's a lot. I would say in my world, three to five is fair. Three to five is yeah. fair. But this is, you know, they have their, their, their structure that they're aiming for. So fine, aim high. And then for every welder, you would have three assemblers. Right, which would be millwrights, uh, hydraulic, you know, people that know uh, machining, any of the other supplementary trades to welding. And I always think about how that pyramid gets wider as you go down. So they say, okay, we need all these welders, we need all these welders. But for every three to five of these welders, you need to have one fabricator out there, right? Mm -hmm. And for every three to five of these welders, you need to have 10 to 15 assemblers, hydraulics, maintenance, uh, machinists, uh, millwrights to support them. And, and, I don't think the schools across Canada collaborate to work that out because we can push all these welders out, but then where's the fabricators and we can push all these engineers out, but where's the welders, you know, and, and that, that pyramid doesn't fit, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, there's definitely holes blocks missing in the pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree with you on that one. And that's something that I've noticed, like I've been in that, that management position for six years now. And I think, for every people that walks in the door, one out of 10 maybe is going to be able to be a good fitter. Maybe. Yeah. A lot of good welders, but fitters and fabricators, it's, it's a lost art almost, which is essential to the trade, as you said, because if you're missing a layer of the pyramid, you don't have a pyramid anymore. That's right. And, and I feel like welders have ability, like the good, the top welders have an ability to visualize you know, the arc, the weld, they can, the sound and the smell and the feel, they just know. Mm -hmm. And you see these good welders, they don't even need to look. They know what it is. They can even tell by the sound. Mm -hmm. We all get to that point. Fabricators, it's a different thing. You're able to envision the whole project in your head like 3D model. And you can spin it around and you can pull mm -hmm. pieces out and put pieces in. And that's not a skill that you're born with. I mean, some people have it, some people don't. Right. And, and it's, I've seen people want to be fabricators, but they just don't get it. And it's not that they're not smart. It's not that the, anything like that, it's just not in their, in their genetics or something, or they just don't have the ability to do that. Um, and that's the piece I think that you have to have and train. It's tough. It, it's very difficult, but once you have it, then you see, you see everything as a whole different mm -hmm. as, aspect. If you want, like once you understand that drawings and you 3d in your head, then it's it's then you're good oh yeah well, yeah once the <laughs> once the light comes on the lights comes on and it stays on forever like it's just it's i think like you said it's a skills that you got to learn it's not something that you're gonna be born with yeah now some, for you, some people maybe but yeah the lucky mm. ones <laughs> yeah so and now what's what's the plan for you going forward like it sounds like you're happy in the company what's what are the goals that you're setting up for your company now as general manager what are the things you're trying uh, to do like we're, I would say that we're probably as of, as of today, probably the biggest, uh, fabricator in the North of 60. Mm -hmm. Um, so from there, I want to try to, to make the company, um, better from, from, from every other companies in Canada, for example, fabricators from, so when people hear our name, they're like, oh yeah, that's good quality. Um, at the moment, starting next month, we have our, we hired an engineer that's going to start 
working full-time for us. So we're going to become division one of CWB. And uh, actually last night I was working on our certification with CISC to get our quality standards uh, certified as well. So just trying to always get, go to step ahead to be, to be ahead of everybody else if we want. Well, and you have to, I mean, one of the things I always tell people about certification, whether it's AWS, ASME, CISC, AISC, CWB, ISO, IIW, whatever, the process, whether you want to do it or not, is beneficial. All of them are beneficial because you learn. You learn so much through an audit process, through a registration process. You learn more about the process of the electrodes, the welding, the liabilities, the insurances, the all those little pieces, the steel construction, everything. That knowledge isn't isn't really accessible to people until they start going through this registration process. Then you start learning all this stuff and you're like, Oh my gosh, I have to do all these things in order to get that piece of paper. And it's not just do them, learn them. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, it's a lot to take on. I mean, your brain must be pretty full of, uh, of codes right now. Yep. Yep. It is. (laughs) And and, I mean, I, I do enjoy this part of the work too. Uh, like, I just tried to think of ways to make the company, like I said, better and highlight from everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, I think, I think the CISC certification was the next logical step for us. Especially um, in the bridge making a, world, you know. Exactly. And there's only a few companies throughout, throughout Canada that have that certification and all the names that are associated with that. You can tell, oh yeah, these guys are, these guys are good, are big players. Like you can mm-hmm. tell their names. So that that's kind of what we're hoping. Um, and AWS is not off the table either because we're so close to Alaska. There could be, there could be some some work there as well. So yeah, even though we know that CWB is better. <clears throat> anyway. Oh, of course, hundred percent, hundred percent. What about growth? You know, with a limited population, limited, um, I guess, amount of of availability of of employment. Is there an opportunity for companies like yours to grow? Is like, you know, like companies in, in highly populated areas are like, well, we want to grow and then we're going to get so big, we'll open a second shop or a third shop or we'll expand across Canada. Is that is that even possible in, in the Northern Territories? I would say if there would be expansion for us, I would say it would probably be south. Uh, I don't th- I don't foresee a, a expansion north because we're already covering all the way up to the Beaufort Sea. So mm. it's uh, but I would say as a company, there's still lots of room for us to 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 expand as per se with automation nowadays too. Uh, you can bring a machine in the shop and then that's going to do it's going to increase your production 50 percent. And when the work, the nice thing about automation too, is that when the work is is the workflow goes down, which up here it is always like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just turn the breaker off and then you don't have to lay off anyone. You don't have to pay nothing. It's just, it's there. And next time you need, you fire it up and it's good. Right. So I would say automation and mixed with like starting to look, maybe Alaska or Northern British Columbia is definitely uh, mm-hmm. options that are feasible. It's interesting. You bring up automation. Cause like, I mean, we have such a big push at CWB uh, to get into the automation codes and supporting industry with automation from an agnostic point of view, where we're just trying to help you streamline your company, we don't tell you what to buy or who to buy, but mm-hmm. you know we are starting to offer programs now to help companies automate because that is going to be where companies need help with. In the past, they needed help with the welders, so we're there to support the welders. That's what the association does. But now companies are saying, well, we're getting into welding automation. Who supports us for the robots? 
So, you know, we need mm-hmm. to start getting into that as well. And for remote areas, I think people forget how automation could actually be a much higher impact, like you said, for places that are mm-hmm. more remote. And plus, uh, a robot doesn't necessarily care if it's minus 30 or plus 20. You know what I mean? Exactly. But I think it's it still needs to be a balance uh, mm-hmm. because if it's overpopulated with automation, then people don't want to go into trade and then you still need... Like if you got your, your beam line to cut and process and mark your beam, you still need somebody to put the stiffener in mm-hmm. and to paint it. You know what I mean? So I think it's it's a juggling act between doing it just enough, but not too much. So we still keep people interested in the in the trade. And I think like um, there's a, a company we bought a plasma table from their top of the line uh, automation and then they're Canadian made and they're, they're unreal. So yeah. it's, I, I definitely think that Throughout the years, we'll see uh, more and more of those beam lines and this and that, well, and helping and, to fill fill that gap. And I, and in, like the industry now, I mean, automation is not new. We've been working with robots for seventy years now. You know, is uh, they've shown that automation and robotization of employments increases the amount of people you have to hire. Everyone for many many years thought that we would lose to the robots. The robots would take over, and everyone would lose their jobs. But now we know that actually the robots increase the number of jobs we have because they produce more production and humans are growing. It's not like our population is going down, right? So the population keeps going up. Automation is just filling a gap. The work is still there. 100%. And I think think it's for for the best as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if we don't keep up with the demand of, of building or highways or anything then it's actually slowing down the population because then there's no housing. Like yeah. those, those high, those high rises in Edmonton, they're all built out of steel. If you stop building them, there's then no what? houses to get yeah. built. So exactly. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I think it's, I think it'll be a good, good step forward in the future. So for, for the listeners that are, are tuning in, if they were interested in, in experiencing your part of the world and maybe going up there to work as a welder, you know, what would be the steps they would need to take to to try to get up there and find some work? Well, I would say uh, reaching out is always always a good thing. Like we're we're available on Facebook. Uh, I got I'm available on the website. My email. Reaching out, see the workload we got, and just put the resume out there. And the best way I would say is if it's a plan that somebody that plans to to do this in the future is not wait till you're ready to to move is put your resume out there. And then when, when we got the work, we'll be like, Hey, we, we got opportunities now. Mm-hmm. That's, I would say this is probably the best, the best approach because sometimes with the work being always up and down, we never know if maybe that when you're ready, we're not ready or vice versa. Right. And what type of certifications would you look for? Or what would you look for on a resume that would really stand out? What are the tickets or qualifications that you would love to see? Somebody that can read blueprints, imperial metrics, uh, that can fit a little bit of structural steel based on Tekla uh, drawings. That's a huge asset. Uh, that's a no-brainer. It's it's definitely something that would highlight from from everybody else. Um, as far as as welding wise, we're focused more on metal core in the shop and stick in the field. So somebody that can run a nice seventy eighteen vertical. Uh, typically, it, it might sound silly, but typically that that makes to me, that makes them a really good versatile welder that can do field work and shop work. 
mm-hmm. um, somebody somebody that has experience putting up buildings but can also work in a shop that's ultimate for me because um, that's being that we we do everything in house uh, being able to do it all or at least willing to learn it all definitely makes a big difference. Do employees in your area qualify for the Northern Living Allowance, the bonus from the government? Yeah. 100%. 100%. Everybody that lives in the Yukon uh, is available for it up to two person per households. Uh, so it's it's not as much as people think it is, but it still helps at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that the hardest part for somebody that's thinking to move up here permanently is to start looking for housing before they jump in their truck and drive up the highway. Yeah, it's, not, it's probably it's, not easier just to rent a trailer and live outside uh, all year round. Probably can't do that very well. I, I got a couple guys that's what they do. They came from Alberta and yeah. they're more than happy to li- live in their fifth wheel year round. Yeah. As long as it's uh, the summer months, right? Not the cold, cold, cold winter. Oh, they still do it in the cold, cold winter. <laughs> they, they, I wouldn't do it myself, but um, like it's the, the housing market did cool off a little bit over mm-hmm. the last six months. So it is more affordable, um, but it's it's definitely plan, planning ahead is for somebody that wants to come here for any periods of time. Because there's that misconception about the, the North that when people come to work, you go and you do overtime and you do three weeks, 10 hours a day, every day, and then you go and turn around. The reality is in the shop, we work 40 hours a week, Monday to Friday, 8 to 4.30, and when we're on site, yes, there's opportunities for overtime and for this and that because we need to get the building up quick and this and that. But the reality is 90% of our work in the shop is a 40-hour week. So if people that want to come here shouldn't want to come here for all-patch lifestyle. They want to come here for the nature, fishing, hunting, camping. Lifestyle. And and work at the same time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah no, that's good advice. I love that. All right. Well, Phil, this has been a wonderful conversation uh, you know, just a couple, a couple, I want to just finish off with a couple more questions, but uh, it's been wonderful on the show. You know, first of all, you know, in terms of, you know, the CWB Association, we have chapters all over Canada. Do you think that we have enough of a welding community for us to set up a chapter in, in the North? Uh, do you think we have enough people, enough welders, fabricators, engineers, that there'd be an interest for it? Because, that is on my checklist of possible places to look at setting up a chapter. Well, I would say that that's definitely something that would require, I don't think I can comment right off the bat like this mm-hmm. on the spot, but I would definitely be interested into helping you out with this. If that's something that you want to do, you got my contacts and mm-hmm. I would be, I, I wouldn't mind getting involved with that actually. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll reach out for you. And the last question is, you know, where do you go on your summer holidays? You know, if you you live somewhere where people go there for summer holidays, where do you go? Uh, in the hol- summers, I don't get much holidays with the type <laughs> of work I do. <laughs> but or I uh, guess where do you it, go in the middle of January when you want to run away? <laughs> uh, a week ago, I just came back from Colombia, so there you go. <laughs> it was it was a beautiful time, South America. I love, but in the summer here, uh, we just stay here because uh, I can drive my truck for half an hour and being in the middle of nowhere doing camping. Mm-hmm. That's just what I like doing. Just far enough so the cell phone can't ring is the perfect spot. <laughs> That's great advice. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Phil, for taking time uh, to be with us today. Anytime. Thanks, Max. 
And for the people that are interested, you know, reach out to to Philip Vincent at Klondike uh, Welding up in the in the in the Yukon and Whitehorse. If you have any questions, you can find them online. He said they're on Facebook. And when this podcast drops, we'll also be sharing his information with uh, with the posts. So, you know, make sure that if you have any interest in going up north or even on holidays or check it out, I'm interested. I've always wanted to go up there. I have people that have gone up there and never come back. I feel that happens like actually quite a bit. So, uh, uh, you know, follow along and, 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 and stay tuned with that. And for all the people that have been downloading, sharing, and commenting on our podcast, thank you so very much. We're doing great. We've got a great year planned ahead of us. We've got lots of conferences coming up we got some great plans and some really cool stuff coming out. We're going to be working hard around Skills Canada. We're going to be in Quebec City for Skills in at the end of May. So we're going to be doing lots of really fun work around there in Team Canada. We also are going to be at FabTech in Toronto in June and FabTech Orlando in the States, I believe, in October. So we're going to be all over the place. We're going to be doing all the cool stuff, and I hope to see everybody there. And if you see us in the wild, come up to us, say hi, and uh, shake our hands. We'd love to meet you. All right, so stay tuned for the next episode. We'll see you there. We hope you enjoy the show. You've been listening to the CWB Association Welding Podcast with Max Cerrone. If you enjoyed what you heard today, rate our podcast and visit us at cwbassociation.org to learn more. Feel free to contact us if you have any questions or suggestions on what you'd like to learn about in the future. Produced by the CWB Group and presented by Max Herman. This podcast serves to educate and connect the welding community. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.